All right, so the topic that we're going to discuss is the issue of right thought and how to bring it about. And so the very first thing that needs to be said is, is that uh, what is wholesome thought or right thought is based upon a set of criteria and that as the student progresses, he will have insights into those criteria as well as also having insights into the actual items themselves in the mind uh, in the sense that there are two different kinds of insights, but that both of the insights will lead to the understanding that uh, <clears throat> not only is this whatever it is, is attractive to me, <clears throat> and it's attractive because here it is, it's in the mind. It's been attracted in there, okay? So it, it, I find it attractive. That's what its uh, purpose of being in the mind is. And so now that this is in the mind, we not only need to see the attractiveness of it, but also the dukkha or the unwholesome or to see uh, the danger in it. And then that's the way that once we see it, we can see the escape or to get that part out of the mind. Now, um, it's, it's kind of like a progress in the sense that you've probably heard this. At one time, the Buddha was confronted with the story of the Brahmins who were saying that action is the big issue. It's like cutting uh, um, words into a stone. Actions have uh, consequences. Heard that with voting and all kinds of stuff. Actions have consequences. And then words are not quite as dangerous, depends upon the situation, but words uh, that we speak is like writing something in the sand. It may persist for a while, it may not. And then the Brahmins would say, but thought, thought's like writing in the air. It's got of no consequence. And the Buddha came back with that, oh no, in fact, the mind is the forerunner. That if we don't have a thought of it, it's not going to happen. The thought precedes everything. That um, <clears throat> often when we're speaking, the thinking process goes right along with the speech so that the words that we are forming in the mind are said with the mouth. And that's actually kind of an interesting thing to look at in the sense that when we were really, really little kids, when we thought about the arm moving and then the arm actually moved, it was quite a surprise. But we kind of take that for granted here as an adult. And so that's something to start to pay attention to is the consciousness is when we want to move a hand or, or an object or when we're talking, that the mind actually is giving each word to the mouth to speak. And so the mind is the forerunner. Uh, do you mind if I make a point or would you like to... All right, go ahead. So it's interesting in the Bhagavad Gita... They actually really focus on thought. They say, um, to our, Krishna says to Arjuna, perform each action as if it were a sacrifice to me. 
Um, and so in the Bhagavad Gita, like Krishna has to kill these, all of these thousands of people, many of whom are his family members in his holy war that he's a part of. And uh, he has to do it. And um, or Arjuna has to do that. Excuse me, Arjuna has to do that. And Krishna is Arjuna's kind of counsel. And he tells him, just detach, you know, perform each action as a sacrifice to me, which is a big emphasis on thoughts. Uh, okay. Yeah. You, rather than using it in the word sacrifice, let's turn it around into calling it uh, a holy act. Yeah. Okay? That if we look at it as a, as a holy act or a sacred act, then that will have that value of turning it also into looking at it wholesome. As opposed to sacrifice, looks at uh, that goat you're killing. Sure, yeah, it's very old text, you know, so it's different. I understand exactly, but they were still pointing in the right direction, and I'm not talking about the old text anyway. I'm talking about how modern-day people listen to the word sacrifice and don't understand it to be a holy act. Right, right. Okay, so that's a good point, yes. So, now that we know that the mind is the forerunner, whenever we start to act, that would be acting in an unwholesome way. That unwholesome action was directed with the unwholesomeness and the mind. That's an important point because that means that if we can take the unwholesomeness out of the mind, then our actions will become wholesome naturally. That when we're uh, going against society, breaking laws, breaking rules, breaking precepts, doing what goes against uh, is the order of the day. Whenever we're doing that kind of stuff, it has to do with um, rebellion against authority or some other kind of um, instinctual dangers uh, that we built up uh, that winds up being unwholesome because that behavior is not appropriate to this situation. That in fact, if we are um, wise, awake, and alert, then we are most likely to do something that is wholesome, as opposed to doing something that is unwholesome. This is an important point, because that means really then that the only work that we have to do is to clean out unwholesome thoughts out of the mind. Because if we do that, and the mind is, is wholesome, unified, and pure. Uh, the example is if, that if you want something that you can't have, then you will begin to want it more and more, can't have it, feel deprived, and now we're going into bad feelings and we'll eventually take some action to go get that object in order to satisfy the bad feelings we have with the want of doing without it. So there's, there's extremes. <clears throat> two extremes, one on one end, one on the other. We had just started this part of it, uh, so we'll talk about it again. And that is, is the one extreme is, is that you want something that is totally dangerous and totally impossible, but we still totally want it. And that, in fact, this is the, uh, this would be the normal novel plot. And then right at the end of the, the novel, 
somehow miraculously he finally does get it. And then the justification to see he finally did get it, and this whole novel wall of misery and suffering was worth it because he finally did get what he wanted. But with the teachings of the Buddha, we're not looking at the final end of it, do I ever get it? But rather we're looking at it in the sense of the cost-benefit analysis, how much work is it, and is it worth getting? Just like in business, you know, that the reason that a business can be successful is because it doesn't necessarily have to operate upon the whims and the feelings of the boss, that some analyst can go in there and analyze the data and figure out what is the right way to go based upon the cost-benefit analysis. How much is this thing worth as opposed to how much work it's going to take to get it? So at the other end of the extreme, go ahead. So another comment, just to illustrate your point, and I think you'll like it, is have you ever heard of the movie V for Vendetta? Yes, absolutely. Right, the, the bombs in the bottom of the uh, uh, the, the uh, parliament building and the train and all of that kind of stuff. Yes, I, I saw the movie and heard the story. The movie yeah. doesn't quite fit the story, but go ahead. Yeah, the movie is, is not as good as the story, but it's usually that way, but... The, there's a philosopher, Slavoj Žižek, that said that um, he would, you know, the, the movie's about a revolution, right? Overthrowing yes. this tyrannical regime. And the philosopher said he would sell his mother into slavery to see the movie that's about the day after the um, <laughs> of the regime. Because <laughs> it's not going to be pretty, right? You know, it's not going to be pretty. And then that leads you to question the whole motive of the revolution right and that's his whole point is like as you're saying there's all this build-up and then you know was it worth it you know what is exactly. it pan out yeah <clears throat> that's that's an important point andrew it can be uh looked at from the absolute opposite extreme and the opposite extreme is is that you, what you want is very small very easily had right here in front of you and you just get it and when you do get it now you're satisfied because you got what you want and you can use an example of that would be a nice deep in breath or you could even go so far as to have it as a pleasant thought or a wholesome thought because these are very easy to have as opposed to uh, the kind of stuff that's in novels and movies where we really want something that's very, very hard to get. So now that we know that there's a continuum in there, we can use that to help us decide what's wholesome and what's not wholesome. And so we can sort of find a place to plot that middle point on into uh, in that cost-benefit analysis in the sense of, yeah, I want it, but it's not worth the effort would be over on this side and then I want it and it is worth the effort is going to be on this side okay in that regard that's a good way to start and that it doesn't even matter where you put that line to start <clears throat> you can put it way over here because what's going to happen is is that through the investigation 
of seeing what is what and seeing what is due because that line is going to or your marketplace is going to start marching in this direction in towards the wholesome so that more and more and more of what you thought used to be okay and wholesome and whatnot actually you're now you're putting in the unwholesome place and more and more you're deciding only a very few things are worth wanting and those things are generally very, very easy to get. Okay, this is why the Buddha looks at it from the perspective of the uh, the four requisites, is the, the kind of things that are very easy to get. For instance, it's really easy to get a porch, but a high-rise high condo, not so easy. Um, so, just enough housing, just enough clothing, just enough food, and just enough um, medical attention. Guess what? A lot of people in the world don't have those four things, and so they're automatically going to be in a state of deprivation or suffering. That there are a few things that we do need. If we don't have adequate clothing, for instance, if we, uh, the monks, by the way, are really good at intentionally walking barefoot, but not when they're out in public, when they're traveling, especially when monks are traveling, they will use footwear because it's dangerous to go off in uncharted territory with the intention of going rather than intention of being. And so that would be an example of why monks would wear shoes on, on some occasions and on other occasions not wear them. Um, but at just the basic level, if we can get down to what is just our basic level, now the place to start for every student is where they're at now. Whatever housing that they're having in this present moment should be the baseline. This is good enough. We don't need any more than this. And from that, we can begin to recognize that, wait a minute, maybe I don't need this room or that room, or maybe I don't need so much. And so we can begin to, uh, to what we call downsize, but that downsizing has to be done first in the mind. And so we do it first in the sense that we begin to downsize, we begin to recognize that, wait a minute, what I used to think was okay or wholesome now is too much work. It's not worth the effort. So in that regard, we're going in the direction of taking it easy. We're going in the direction of a job well done rather than work to do. We're going in the direction of that place where the society does not like. And because the society does not like it, they have negative labels for it. I'll use one. They will call him lazy. Lazy is almost a dirty word in English language. That's what my dad used to me. I mean, that was a dirty word. It took me a long time to figure out what my dad was not only right, but he was complimenting me. He was congratulating me <laughs> for figuring out that what he was telling me to do was not worth the effort. <laughs> And so, yes, non-doing is the direction that we're going for. And so anything that keeps us busy, agitated, 
wanting, desiring, and going about doing things to get our desires, or the opposite of it is going about doing the things that we were told to do because we should do them. That's the set of rules that we picked up. So we've set up, we picked up a set of rules. We picked up a set of views about what's good and what's bad so that now we avoid the bad and try to grab hold of the good. This is the critical mind. And we also have this materialism of wanting things. And all of those three that I just mentioned, uh, the uh, attachment to views, attachments to rules, and attachments to material goods are three instincts that um, are, let us say, the outcome would uh, have a basis or a foundation, and that foundational instinct is the self-preservation instinct. So we pick up weapons and tools to help us survive. We pick up rules of our society in order to survive in that society, and then we pick up uh, opinions based upon critical thinking about what is good in and out of that society so that we'll know which way to go. All of these are basic instincts and that you'd be surprised at how smart many animals are of being able to operate within these instinctual parameters. Go ahead, Robert. I instinctively pick up you have something to say. <laughs> sure, sure. So a, a question. So there are a lot of things in life that we find enjoyment from because of how hard they are. You know, like, for example, like climbing Mount Everest, right, or mm -hmm. running a marathon, something like this, right? And there might be a lot of suffering in the short to medium term in order to accomplish that. But then uh -huh. at the end of the day, you know, you can feel proud saying, I once ran a marathon, I once climbed Mount Everest. It gives you confidence. You know, I have run a marathon before, so, like, when I think about that, it gives me confidence and, like, a Absolutely. sense of, I can do this, you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, what's your take on those sorts of kind of big tasks that can seem very ambitious, but... You That's know, can, the reason yeah. why people do those kind of things and suffer through it is because of the, the fact that it is difficult. It's... Um, uh, an unusual thing to do. So when that person does have the capability of doing that, that gives them a level of confidence. This is actually a major part of the path of the Dhamma. Because if you think that, um, that climbing Mount Everest uh, is a good thing because the guy who stands on top of it can throw his hands in the air and cheer and take a couple of photographs and feel like a big man of the year and get his name on the front of a magazine and how good he feels with that. Okay. How many people climb that mountain and die? A lot. How, how many people climb that mountain and the other people went with them to help them out, but, but it was that guy who wanted to do it, but these guys went along with it and they died, like Sherpas. Uh, probably even more. Many, yeah. many more, okay. Uh, and yet, how many people have done Mount Everest? I think a good amount, but I don't know how many. 
let us say just in general thought, maybe a thousand. Okay. Because I don't know how many. Maybe 500, maybe 10,000. Don't know. But let's just say arbitrarily uh, an estimate of a thousand have, have made it. Some of them have been quite famous. Some of them famous for have, having died on it. And all they got really out of it was that exhilaration feeling and also the, um, uh, the sublime underlying confidence that came with that. I offer you a higher mountain that's easier to climb that will give you even a higher exhilaration and even more confidence if you can climb this mountain because it's even more rarely done. And that is to climb the mountain of your own mind, to get on top of your own mind. Now is the time to put in that phrase that everyone, every human being is an emperor of their own pile of dirt. Are you going to be underneath your pile of dirt? Are you going to be at the bottom of your pile of dirt? Are you going to be on top of the world? Because being on top of the world gives you that confidence that being on top of the world literally on top of Mount Everest gives. It's the same exhilaration without all of the suffering. That in fact, this is the mountain that you climb that takes you higher and higher out of suffering to where on the real Mount Everest, the higher you climb, the tougher it is. Sure. Um, a question about that. So, um, do you feel like the monastic life is the only way to really do that? Um, Absolutely and, uh, not. In fact, if you look at the failure rate of monastics, you begin to question, is that even a, a viable path? <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting because... If if you look at Catholic priests, for instance, with all their celibacy and withdrawal of that, the Catholic Church has two primary issues. One is child molestation, and the other one is prostate cancer. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know about the prostate cancer. <laughs> this well hidden, as you can imagine. <laughs> there yeah. was a pun there somewhere. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, so, um, actually, I'll go ahead and tell this story. I was actually in the United States, a, a Buddhist monk living at a, at a Watt, and this um, monk had an internal pain, went to the doctor, and the doctor immediately diagnosed and told him he's got to go to one of those dudes that sticks his fingers up your butt and checks for prostate cancer. And I was actually in the room with this uh, monk while the doctor was doing the prostate cancer thing. And uh, uh, basically because of language problem. And so I was right there in the room with him that uh, the monk wanted me in the room because of that. And so uh, that was when the doctor, you know, he just assumed that it was he's a, he's a monk. <laughs> this must be prostate cancer. This monk actually went all the way to California because of uh, monetary issues and things like that. He could get a free ride to California, and he got a free ride to California because of the networks that we have, and that uh, so he could get to a real doctor to do the surgery pro bono. 
And when he got to this doctor who's about to do the surgery, he comes and says, you don't have, you don't have prostate cancer. And he was previously diagnosed twice by two doctors in North Carolina who, who just assumed that it was prostate cancer because of the frequency of it uh, among monastics. Wow. That's so funny. Okay, so and, and, and is he fine now? Like, is he... Yeah, well, as far as I know, no, he finally came back to our temple, and that's when we heard the story. Wow. That's so funny. It is. It's funny, except that it's tragic in in that regard. So, back to the the point, when you said monastics, you got to look at the whole crowd. just, Just Buddhist monks, because most Buddhist monks never get around to the to a really good teacher and ask the right questions. That's why it's always been an internal kind of thing. That it's only when people are ready for it. This is where Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa made a major, major correction, of course, by saying it's time to let this stuff be public. I've talked about it to many people on the internet. Let's not do that right now. But in any case, back to the point that you were making about that people can go through great adversity thinking that, uh, in fact, the, the, the twin words agony and ecstasy, the ecstasy of success and the agony of the defeat. And that's all you have at the Olympics. The people who are the winners, the ecstasy and the agony of the defeat. And yet how many gold medalists do we have now? We've been doing the Olympics since the 1930s or more. How many gold medalists do we have? 100,000, 200,000 gold medalists? And yet they have the gold medalists will have exactly that same exhilarating feeling upon winning, uh, winning a 100-yard dash that the guy on top of Mount Everest has. Right. And the average meditator can, t- can think himself into that state and have, have it yourself. If you want to feel that good, why don't you just feel that good? You are in control of your feelings. Get on top of them. You do not have to climb that mountain one step at a time through the winters and all of that kind of stuff because it's not really a Mount Everest. It really is easy to to climb this mountain. It's just not done often. And then you're on top of the real world, the world of your own mind. And when you're on top of the world of your own mind, you don't need to go to the top of Everest to run a gold medal race or anything like that because you've already got that lion's roar. You're already that uh, confident. But in fact, yeah. it's that confidence that is the, uh, the, uh, the, the residue or the result of the practice is, is that Arahats are enormously confident. Because they know that they can handle anything. Even yeah. their own pending doom, they can handle it. So, one question about the monastic versus lay life. So, um, how do you envision the practice fitting into people's lives? Because I know you, you instruct many people in many different situations all over the world. Um, and I tell them all the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and that is sati, to wake up, to investigate with this um, uh, set of parameters of the Buddha, which actually is 
boil down to dukkha, dukkha, naroda. Figure out where you are on that. Is this dukkha? Is it not dukkha? Ah, this is dukkha. And then the next step is to take the right effort to change it out of an unwholesome thought, out of dukkha, out of a hindrance, into a wholesome thought. And that's a skill to be developed in the sense that the more you practice, the more wholesome your thoughts can get. How wholesome can your thoughts actually become? How good can they get? On top of Mount Everest, good? That doesn't sound, I mean, there have been a thousand people who have been to the top of Mount Everest. I want to go higher than that. I want to go right to the top of humanity. What's the highest place that a human being can go? Well, you know, considering my psychedelic experiences, <laughs> I have some thoughts on that. <laughs> You well, know, don't have so many thoughts about it and then yeah. start having some experiences of it. And experiences it. of it, yeah, which would okay. be like, uh, you know, total communion with the divine, you know, just complete I feeling got of communion, sublimity. I, and you can call it divine because it's that delicious, but you could just call it becoming one with or part of it. And what this actually means is to become completely and fully conscious, which means that we're not doing a lot of processing. So in the, in the Buddhist tradition, we've got exactly how the mind works to get us into that state. And the method that we use is, first off, we have to go to the, feeling, uh, the place of feelings and thought so that we can begin to manage our feelings. The only way that you're going to be able to manage your feelings is by being able to manage the mind and to manage your breathing. If you can learn to manage and control your breathing, then you can learn to manage and control your thoughts because they go hand in hand. Then you learn to manage and control your feelings. Once you do that, then we can go deeper into the way that the mind actually brings up these feelings so that we can get down to the point of understanding what is perception and how does the mind actually work. Then we get down to the point of consciousness, which is that which most people think that is actually the me in there, the observer, the one who knows because he sees or hears or touches or tastes or, or knows. So there are six sense bases, six of them, and consciousness is of these six times, which means that we can spend a thought moment in one of six ways. We can either spend it thinking or we can spend it seeing, or we can spend it um, hearing, touching, tasting. And when we're saying seeing, we can also be doing seeing on the entire interior as well as the exterior. We can, we can do hearing on the interior as well as the exterior. Like, for instance, uh, internally humming a song to yourself. But it's always associated with these sense, six sense bases some of them are both uh, internal and external, and one of them is only internal. In other words, we don't have, we can have external thoughts in the sense of thoughts on the outside of the world, and we can have thoughts on the inside in the sense of having thoughts what are happening on the inside. But uh, that thought does not have a, um, a corresponding sixth sense that's on the outside. In other words, all we have is the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, touch, tactile, proprioceptic in the body. 
But when we wake that stuff up and start having more and more of our mind moments spent in sensory input to the point that we're almost in completely spending every mind moment in sensory input and spending no time in discursive thought or in processing any of that input, that's when we actually become at one with the universe. But we have to get the mind in such a state. And that state then could be also called the state of awe. And people do this all the time. This is the reason why people go to the Grand Canyon and they look out over the railing and they look down at that and it's just an overwhelming thought. It's, not, it's actually not a verbal thought because there's too much happening in, in the side of that Grand Canyon to even start to think in verbs or in words. Sure. So one kind of question, it might be kind of a silly question, but I, I feel like it's worth bringing up. So, um, you know, sometimes I'll have one nostril that is clogged, you know, when I'm breathing, you know, and, um, you know, so I feel like I'm not getting the full breath experience and, and it kind of I, I nitpick that you know and whatnot and worry about well, when you do nitpick that catch that yeah. nitpick and you can call that an unwholesome nitpick and that the breathing that you're doing is good enough all right that's good to know <laughs> now what if your nose is completely clogged should you is it okay to breathe through the mouth it's okay with me that you stick a knife in your throat <laughs> Well, then I won't call be able that, to ask by the way, questions. a tracheotomy, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, if yeah. things get too messed up, too clogged, hey, man, keep breathing. <laughs> At least do that. <laughs> All right. Good to know. Just, yeah. As I said, kind of a silly question, but I thought worth asking because it does happen to me. So, yeah. Okay. There are several things, but the best thing that I would recommend is an, an antihistamine, a modern product. But in the old style, they would take uh, either water, warm water, salty water, or warm salty water in that order in the sense that the warm salty water is the best and then you hold it in the cup of your hand, those, close one nose and breathe in that <clears throat> warm salty water in and, and pull it back down through and that will really clean things up. Mm. Cool. And you do Never it the that. other side and do it. First, you hold it with your thumb, and then this, by the way, has an, an Indian name. I learned this in India, and I, I don't remember the name of it. And believe me, there are all kinds of reasons why people get their noses clogged up in India. <laughs> yeah, there, there's actually a type of tobacco uh, that they use in South American shamanic ceremonies. We've had it in our ceremonies, and uh, it's called mamu, and it's a liquid, and you go, go up your nose with it. And it's, it's, uh, it's similar. I'd, I'd use the same strategy <laughs> with that. It's a, yeah, it's a good, good yeah, practice. They call it name lining. I think, no, that's something else. <laughs> yeah, that's something else. That's not the mom. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So let's get back into the issue of the wholesome thought. The question then is how wholesome can the thoughts become? How, if you're going to go in this direction, one, we can do it in two ways now. One is, is that we can concentrate on having uh, just wholesome thoughts, or we can uh, begin to work on getting the thoughts even more wholesome. Okay. 
Now, what would a more wholesome thought would be, would be like, uh, wow, this is nice. I'm glad I don't have to think about that anymore. Into, wow, this is so nice. I don't have to think about anything anymore. Wow. <laughs> and then there's even a deeper one than that. And that is, you know, it's been so long since I even thought of having anything to do. <laughs> it's just so marvelous that there really is. Everything is okay. And then that's when things kind of gush, when it's just everything is just absolutely all right. When you absolutely accept the cosmos for what it is, then it becomes completely divine. Absolutely no issues, no problems, no worries. And things get really, really wholesome. How good can it get? Well, I don't know, but this is good enough. Getting into that good enough and more good enough and more good enough is the uh, is the skill that we develop, going more and more wholesome. And so, in that regard, it doesn't matter whether the student in the beginning is not able to discern very well what's unwholesome and not wholesome, because he begins to see that oh, if he throws out these unwholesome thoughts, he begins to feel better. That this is not like the Mahasi method, where after you get really, really deep into it, then you go into this fearsomeness, this uh, disgust, this misery, into this thing that they call the dark night of the soul. That in fact, with the proper practice of Anapanasati, we're getting rid of those kind of hindrances right from the very beginning. That we're not noting and noting and noting and noting, having that still have the dukkha or the uh, unwholesome, so that eventually, uh, when we begin to note, and we're so excellent at noting that all we can ever see is the dukkha. And that's the dark night of the soul when everything looks like hell. But that's not the best way to practice. The right way to practice is as soon as you see that this is dukkha, throw it out and replace it with something wholesome. This is the real teaching of the Buddha, and I can give you so many Buddha references to where this is found and why it's true. It's right there in the Anapanasati Sutta when he talks about gladdening or brightening the mind, because those are wholesome thoughts. In the, in the exposition on the Eightfold Noble Path, talking about right effort, he specifically says right effort is one. The first right effort is to see wrong view as wrong view, which is where we're placing this ladder or this uh, thing on the continuum. Okay, is where do we figure out what is in fact one's right view and what's wrong, one's wrong view, and establish that for ourselves. This is one's right view uh, effort. But then the next is one's right effort is to maintain right thought, so that once you de de determine what is your line, then make sure that you're always on this side of the line, or not always, but every time you look, every time you remember. And when you find yourself on this side of the line, you pop over to this side of the line. You throw out the unwholesome and bring it into wholesome. And as you do so, you begin to move this line up so that things that you used to be, it used to be that you would go from popping out of unwholesome into wholesome. Now your mark up here is, and so when you find yourself here, you'll say, hey, wait a minute, that's not wholesome anymore. I'm going to have even more wholesome thoughts than that. Um, a comment, but first, uh, Olivier, do you have any questions or comments? Because I know you've been... Yeah. And, yeah. Um, about 
you say replacing the unwholesome with the wholesome, with the wholesome, and at some point you will have wholesome states, and then replace them again with uh, with wholesome states. Uh huh. Over time, you will see. Yeah, and where does it end? Basically, is there an end to it, or does it? Yes, the the end is when you either have only wholesome thoughts that you always approve of. Or you have gaps between the thoughts because why even bother with if you, after you get to the point to where they're all wholesome all the time, then why even bother with that? I mean, there's not much to say anymore. And so you kind of sit and enjoy the fact that you've gotten your mind in a completely wholesome state. Okay. This is, in fact, the way that the Buddha talks about going into the second jhana, getting the mind into a wholesome state so that's just one wholesome thought after another after another would be first jhana. And then the second jhana would be after the thoughts are wholesome, one after another after another, we begin to put some gaps in it. And when the gaps grow fairly large, that would be second jhana. The question is, is that when you come out of second jhana with a thought, are you going to come back into wholesome thoughts? Or are you going to come back all the way into unwholesome thoughts? Mm-hmm. That's why it's so important to uh, practice this issue of, of wholesome thoughts is because even when you get yourself up into the higher jhanas of, of having gaps between the thoughts, when you start thinking again, we don't want to go back to the junk thoughts, back to the unwholesome. We want to always remain wholesome. That you could say, in fact, wholesome thoughts would be the middle path. And the extreme of that, one extreme, would be no thoughts at all. And the other extreme would be unwholesome thoughts, all kinds of thoughts. But here, we're, uh, first jhana would be that middle place where we're only having wholesome thoughts. So when you have thoughts about Johnny, you have only wholesome thoughts about Johnny, not the fact that he kicked your butt yesterday and you're going to go get him. But in fact, you don't even think about him kicking your butt. You just think about how nice it would be to see Johnny again. Sort of like a dog, you know. If you hit a person in the morning, they'll hate you all day. If you hit a dog in the morning, they'll love you all afternoon. (laughs) Forget about it. And that's what we need to do. We need to forget about it. And and so the unwholesome can be forgotten about. Never mind that he hurt you. You're going to have only wholesome thoughts about him. So this would be, uh, wholesome thoughts would be thoughts of friendship, thoughts of cooperation, thoughts of uh, uh, helping people see what's really going on, and thoughts of straightening them out would be unwholesome. Thoughts of telling them off would be unwholesome. Thoughts of telling them them wrong is unwholesome. But telling them, hey, you did that just fine. Let's look at this too. Now that's the wholesome way to do it. Mm-hmm. So one question on doubt. So without a I, doubt. <laughs> without a doubt. There you go. <laughs> so so I. <laughs> So I could imagine circumstances where doubt might be useful or wholesome, right? Where, you know, for example, when you're no, 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 no. You just made a very classical mistake. You used the word doubt for something completely else. Doubt you'd missed. What you're talking about is 
what the Buddha would say, and in fact, this is a very important uh, statement. It's so important that this was one of Achan Po's trick statements with me. It was almost a koan, and that was these two words together, not sure. Do not come to a conclusion. Stay in the state of not sure and keep investigating. And that's exactly what you're talking about, and you're calling that doubt. And no, doubt's an unwholesome state. Doubt's a confusion. Doubt's a, oh, poor me, I don't know what to do. Doubt freezes us as this type of fear. We're not talking about fear here. We're talking about a joyful investigation. Aha, I'm going to, there you are, I see you. Okay. Right. Where the the heck is it? Okay. That's really helpful because I've often thought of not sure as being doubt and then been down on myself for being not sure when, in fact, that's okay. It's very wholesome. Think about that as very wholesome is to not yeah. take a stand on things. When somebody yeah. comes in and says, Republicans, blah, 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 the first thing we say is, I'm not sure of what he's saying is the truth. I don't know. It's better to, rem- and in fact, the Republicans are not a, a unified body anyway. Every human being is a different human being. And big, big things like Republicans don't really exist. In fact, there's even uh, a good way of saying the United States government that little phrase, United States government, does not exist, except in the minds of a whole lot of people. Right. But the actual right. entity doesn't exist, and when it exists in the minds of a whole lot of people, that means that the United States government is not an entity. It's 10 million different opinions that keep changing. Yeah, and most importantly, a lot of those people have guns. And even more importantly than that, they think they need them. That's the worst part. Just having an old shotgun in the back of the corner is no big deal. Right. Having a reason to have it back there, that's unholy thought. The one question would be, um, I feel like it would be rather tricky to differentiate between doubt and not sure. Right. And so what are some, you know, tricks to differentiating between those? You know, what is wholesome versus unwholesome? Generally, the kind of doubt that we're talking about within the Buddhist context generally falls into three categories. And that the Buddha really, really harped on the, the, the third one. He mentioned the second one assuming that the people had already dealt with the first one. But let's deal with them all three so that we can see how these three kinds of doubt fit together. Okay. The first doubt is the doubt of, can I um, clean up my mind? The answer then is no. And then so the question is, is who can I get to help me become happy? Who can help me out? I'm in misery here, folks. Got any volunteers out there? You got a mommy for me? How about a sugar daddy? Or for some, a sugar babe. You got got anybody to help me? I need a priest here. How about a guru? 
How about a how about a Jesus? Maybe if I go take a bath in dirty water and vote for uh, a Republican, then I shall be saved. You see where all of that's going? That's the doubt. Doubt is magical thinking in the sense of who can I get to solve this problem? Or if it's unsolvable, at least I've got an excuse. This is where the law of comma comes in. Oh, it's just my old comma. It's just my old behavior. And this is how we define who we are. Then, in fact, because I can't change and I cannot find anyone who will change me, that means that I'm kind of doomed. Now, that's really a dark night of the soul. The and opposite this, of that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Okay, so this dark night of the soul is when we fall into a state of despair because we cannot find any solution or any answer anywhere. I cannot solve it myself. I don't have the tools. I don't have the skills. And I don't think anybody does anyway. <laughs> and so uh, we have to go find a savior, and all saviors prove to be charlatans or dead. Or perhaps maybe dead charlatans. But in any case... We cannot find someone to help us. So this is the first doubt that we deal with. And when we run across and understand enough of the first noble truth and the second noble truth, this second noble truth actually is pointing out that the source of dukkha is inside the individual. It's not out there, and because it's not out there, there's no one out there that can fix it. The only repair job that can be done in here is in here. And that's the eradication of that first kind of doubt is when we recognize the job is up to me to do. I'm not going to get anyone or any service or any guru or any doctor or any psychologist or any priest or any religion to save me from my sin. I've got to do it myself. Now, that's the first hurdle we have to get over. The second hurdle that we have to get over is, ah, if it's up to me, can I actually do it? And this is the statement that the Buddha makes in the sense that now we're on to something. Are you up to the task? Can, in fact, you clean out your mind and bring your mind to a happy state? Can you do it one time? If you can do it one time, that's the budding of, con of uh, confidence. If you can do it twice, now you're on the road. If you can do it three times and do it three times in a row and another three times, eventually you gain confidence that I can do this. This is almost like putting one foot in front of the other, climbing a Mount Everest. Okay, I can do this. I can do this. And then times will come once we get real mountain climbing skills going, there will become a, um, a, a hard spot, maybe some, a snowstorm or uh, we get sick or something like that. That's just now a new opportunity to practice. Bhikkhu Buddhadasa makes a big point of it that being sick is an excellent opportunity to practice in the sense that, yeah, the body's sick, but I'm not. The body doesn't want to breathe, but I do. I can lay right. here and I can enjoy the fact that I, now, because the body is sick, nobody out there is expecting anything from me. Because I can lay here in bed sick, 
for days and weeks at a time, and I don't have to go do anything. I can just enjoy being sick. Sick's actually not a bad thing. (laughs) And so, as we... go Go ahead. Go ahead. One question. You were mentioning earlier about how, um, you know, if you experience, say, one moment of bliss, right, or jhana, per se, right, that gives you confidence. You do more jhana, that gives you more confidence. You do more and more, it gives you more and more confidence. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that I've found, and this is perhaps an unwholesome thought, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, because I've experienced a good amount of bliss, you know, in my meditation practice. Um, you know, but... Welcome to the I, club. Yes, yes. But my question is, is part of me wonders, like, what is the purpose of this, right? Like, it it seems like it's great. It's a nice experience. You know, I enjoy it. And then I go on with my day and and I get the asshole manager at work, you know, or I get the, you know. When you're um, in front of the asshole manager, would you rather be in that state of bliss or would you rather be dealing with uh, him as if you're calling him an asshole? Um, definitely the first one. All right. So you just answered your own question then, didn't you? It's not a matter of getting into that state occasionally. It's being able to pop right into it and stay in it. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Popping into yeah. it easily and staying in it are the two major skills to be developed of first jhana. When we develop, when we talk about it as a, um, as a skill for jhana. But then we have to look at it in the sense of there are five aggregates of the first jhana, and each one of them requires a skill. That each one of them, that as you're bringing them together to form first jhana, that means that each one of them has to be collected together so that when that skill is put in the pot, now you have all of the ingredients. Let's say that first jhana is something like bread. Okay, we're going to bake bread. And we got to have eggs and butter and milk and flour and sugar. Or maybe uh, not so much sugar. Maybe we're making a cake. If we leave the sugar out, we're probably going to have uh, bread, not cake. If we leave the flour out, the best we can hope for is an omelet. You see what I'm talking about? So when we get all the ingredients together in sufficient quantity, now we can make the product of the first jhana. And so the the first skill is bringing those skills together. And then the second skill of maintaining it is to make sure that part of the mechanism of those things is is that it keeps going. That in fact, one of the five items of the first jhana is that ability to sustain it. Applied and sustained thought. This means that the, the first jhana does have discursive thought but all of the thoughts are wholesome. This is why it's the quality of the first jhana is because it's free from hindrances and we have one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought. Well, what wholesome thoughts? Well, the kind of wholesome thoughts that are going to lead us into a sense of security and safety because unwholesome thoughts will lead us into states of fear and doubt and worry Having wholesome thoughts will lead us into safety, safety and security. Everything's all right. Got no alligators here. Police are not busting the door down. In this moment, everything is okay. Everything is fine. So we can talk ourselves into a state of safety and security. 
we can talk ourselves into being in a state of uh, comfortableness. That a lot of people think that meditation, you have to meditate long enough until the body goes into pain. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa teaches just the opposite of that. To not let the body go into pain. You want to keep the body comfortable so that you can stay, keep the mind in a comfortable place. So with the body being comfort, the mind gets into a comfortable place. Why? Because all the thoughts are wholesome. We're not having any uncomfortable thoughts. And then we develop the, a feeling component to this, and that feeling component then is the feeling of satisfaction or the feeling of relaxation or the feeling of finally I can let it go. Finally I can set the luggage down. Just like we have been on a long vacation or on a trip and finally we get home and the first thing we do is we set that baggage down. And sometimes we don't even bother to unpack it for a while. We just set it down and what a relief it is. Finally I am home. And so this is the state, this is the feeling of the satisfaction. It's a, it's a feeling, and that feeling also has a body component to where the body itself also relaxes, which, by the way, is now point number four of Anapanasati. So point number four, the relaxation of the body and the relaxation of the feelings go hand in hand, along with previously relaxing the mind by having only wholesome thoughts in. So now... We have, because of only wholesome thoughts, we have, in fact, removed the hindrances, and we have built up this, uh, beginning to build up this skill of satisfaction. As we do that and we gain confidence, we begin to also develop the fourth item on the Eightfold Noble Path, and that is the right attitude, and that attitude is the attitude of confidence. I can do this. This is, in fact, that second level of doubt, is when we get to the point when we say no matter how obstructed the mind is with hindrances, no matter the circumstances that we're in right now, I can handle this. I can take care of this. I'm on top of this. This is my game. This is the way to think about it, is, is that we've got confidence. We can manage this, and we will need that kind of confidence at the last moment and the last breath. Because our only option is to be in hell, to be in dukkha over fear of dying and whatnot. But if we've already fully developed that lion's attitude of, hey, I can handle this, then we can handle that too. So the whole idea then is this second level of doubt is the eradication of uh, the question is, am I up to the task or not? And the answer is, darn tootin' I'm up. Yeah. I can do this. Okay, so this is the second level of doubt. The third level of doubt is the knowledge and vision, right. Dan. Go ahead. Quick, one question before the third level. So I, I recall when I visited Swan Moke, and this was a while ago, so I might be misremembering this, but what I recall, I remember Dom Avidu uh, talking about PT uh, arising. Mm -hmm. And how um, it passes, you know, and it's a sensation that arises and passes, right? And and I, I believe kind of part of my interpretation to that of that, and I think he might have said this, but I'm not sure, um, is, is that part of the practice is learning to see the emptiness 
within joy itself. Yeah, okay, all right. He's teaching you a pretty high thing. He's a good teacher, though. <laughs> Basically, what he is recognizing is, is that even if we can get that state of euphoria, that's work. Euphoria, you being euphoric is hot giggity dog, and look at all the arm movements and the breathing and all that stuff. That's actually not relaxing completely. No, you, the euphoria melts back into the sukha of complete satisfaction. <sighs> yes. So um, that's the <laughs> that's one of those things up there is that once we actually have gotten this pity, actually gotten this satisfaction, this euphoria, now the next bar is to recognize, yeah, but that too is work. That's not quite as relaxation as I could do. And so I'll let that one go also. So we, now we move the bar even further towards the wholesome so that even pity winds up being on the unholy. Where in the very beginning for the meditators, pity was way up there. Yeah. Way, way up high. Well, it'll be years before you get any pity. <laughs> and when we get it, we find out, yeah, that too has got too much work. So one question or comment sort of thing about my experience, you know, with your practices that you've taught me, is one thing I'll notice often is when I find an unwholesome thought and I grab onto it, my immediate reaction is almost to smile and laugh. Not always, but oftentimes, you know. That's exactly like, the right. Aha, I caught you. Yeah, it's like, yeah, ah, there it is. There it is. And it, and it takes me out of that moment of unwholesomeness. And I might, like, laugh a little bit for a moment to myself. And, like, it's funny. Like, this happened at the gym today. And I was glad I was wearing a mask so they could wouldn't think, oh, what's this guy <laughs> thinking, this crazy person, you know, laughing at nothing in the gym, you know. And so I was wearing headphones, though, so they might think I was listening to a podcast or something. That, but, you know. That so. happens over here. Yeah. Pam will ask me what I'm laughing at, and I don't have any clear answer. <laughs> Yeah, or so I, it, take, yeah, I yeah. see something and I'll take an in-breath, a, con a conscious in-breath, and she'll hear it and she'll say, what? <laughs> you know that kind of breath like, <gasps> yeah, kind yeah. Of, you know, and so <laughs> I'm, I'm questioned often, but those are the kind of questions. She doesn't ask me questions like, where have you been and what have you been doing? It's the kind of questions of, <laughs> what are you laughing at? <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's great. So, yes, that that spontaneous laughter or that chuckle that comes is also, you could say, that too is a bit of work. And so right. after the chuckle is done, then we still just drop back into that relaxation. You could go so far as to put, in fact, the chuckle itself into that euphoric state. Yes, yes, I was now going to say that, yeah. Even yeah. chuckling is, is a kind of pity. Right. And Very it brief, is the result yeah. of something really wonderful happening, but then even that celebration is too much work. I mean, every, <laughs> like the Star Wars movies, every Star Wars movie, the end of the movie, they had a great big party. Guess what? Right. Parties are too much work. Every party ends. You can't just keep partying. Right. The party is over. <laughs> so, so here's a question. 
Do you think it's better never to go to the party? Uh, no, the better would be of sitting outside the party wanting in, which is where everybody is. You either in and, uh, and enjoy it or you want in. That's just the state, okay? Uh, and and those who go around claiming that they don't want in, the, the louder they scream it, the more likely they are to be a sociopath going out hurting people because they're just simply not aware of what it is that they want. You see, this party is the party of not wanting anything. Right. And everybody else is wanting stuff. They're not in the party. And so when they say that they uh, they, they don't want in the party, that doesn't make any sense. Because they're always wanting stuff. I guess my, my question was, like, is it better not to have those moments of euphoria, laughter, etc., right? Because... No, they're great you, teachers. Oh. They're great teachers. you think, teachers. like, once you reach a certain stage, you shouldn't have them? No, you are really, really critical of the whole thing. Why don't you just relax and enjoy whatever's <laughs> happening? <laughs> Well, it, it's it's important questions, you know. They come up, and I, I know, I know, there are important questions. You have been taught to ask important questions. Thank you. <laughs> when you don't get important answers, you have doubt. Um, I mean, doubt not about sure. can you not do sure. it or not? Not sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Very good. So. Uh, in a few minutes that we have left, let's talk about the third level of doubt, which is the one that is actually mentioned in the sutta strongly, referred to as doubt, and is also uh, mentioned in the Vasudhimaga and all kinds of places because they actually uh, use some suttas. And so basically what this doubt is, is doubt about what is and is not the path. So the first doubt, remember, is who, who can I get to do this path? The second one is, um, am I up to the path? The third one is, when we finally get free of the doubt about what is and is not the path, that's the exact question that you were just asking. Is that you want the whole path all laid out for you in advance before you take the path. And the answer is no, you're going to make a new discovery with a new flashlight with the new step. Every time that you go into it, you're going to see it a little bit easier. And what we're actually doing is recognizing where not to step. So that we can always step into the wholesome and not step into any cow pies along the way. And so we have to watch where we're going. And yet the kind of questions you're asking is the kind of questions like, well, what is, what is it like at the end of the, of the uh, uh, down there someplace? And the way that I would talk about that is, uh, imagine that the, the farmer is going to go visit his cows, and the cows are on the other side of the pasture. The cows have been in this pasture for quite a long time, months, years, whatever like that, and so there's a lot of old and new cow pies all over the ground. Now, if that farmer is only interested in getting down to those cows, he's going to be absolutely covered in shit when he gets there. But if he is mindful with each step that he takes, he can get down to those cows without having stepped in any cow pie. 
because he's watching every step. This is the practice that we want to have is begin to watch every thought that we have and not step into a cow pie of the mind. And pretty soon we'll start recognizing, wait a minute, that's not ground I'm about to step on. That's an old cow pie. (laughs) And so we choose not to put our foot on that one, too. So this is how that scale moves, is is that as we're walking across that pasture, we get pretty good at detecting what's a cow pie and what's not a cow pie. And we gain confidence. And pretty soon we get down to where the cows are and we can do our business with the cows and we don't have to ever worry about anything other than not stepping on the cow pie. Which is partly why I ask about, like, the laughs and stuff like that, is just to know that I'm on the right track, you know? Yes, to know that if you purify the mind right now, you're on the right track. That's the only thing that we need, is is this suffering, is this not suffering? And if we keep asking that question, we'll get good at the answers. And, And I think part of the issue, too, is learning to trust yourself, right? Because I might have, like... What this is, that trust is, the, uh, the Pali word for it is shada or shrada, and that is often translated into the word faith. Guess who does that? Who uses the word faith? Okay, so that's where the translations come from. That's a, a religious term, faith. We're not talking about a religious property at all. We're talking about confidence. We're talking about not just confidence, oh, I think I can do it. We're talking about Muhammad Ali confidence. I'm the king around here. I'm the one who runs this place. Not this place in the sense that you guys own the PC and off into the Internet. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this place right here. I run this place. (laughs) I'm the boss here. I'm the king of this mountain. Okay, that's the kind of confidence that we're talking about, or the lion's roar. And then everybody will pop up and say, well, what about want no self? And I said, yes, it's the self that keeps you a victim. When you drop the selfishness and the selfhood, then you become a lion. Because you know that you can handle anything, without a doubt. So this is that level of courage that we're, uh, if you want to use the word courage. But it's not really courage because courage is what people do when they're afraid and do it anyway. We're talking about fearlessness, that kind of courage. We're talking about Alpha E. Newman level stuff. You know Alpha (laughs) E. Newman out of Mad Magazine? The Mad Magazine, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right. And what did he say? What? Me worry? Yeah, another term for that would be like, hold my beer. We've got this. Okay, so this is that level that the Buddha is talking about of uh, knowledge and vision of what is the right way to go, and we know it. We've got it. We've got it wired. We know what is the path, and we know what is not the path. And once we have that, that gives us more courage, more knowledge, more uh, uh, fearlessness to be able to walk, to be able to trust yourself as a noble. That in fact, this is actually part of what I would uh, 
referred to back in, in psychotherapy, the Buddha didn't mention this, but in psychology they know quite a lot about it, and that is, is that even when someone knows that their behavior is inappropriate, they still won't come out of it because they don't, uh, um, have, they don't have permission. It's like their superego or their sila uh, bhata paramasa or their set of rules is now telling them, you cannot feel good, you're supposed to be a victim, you're supposed to feel bad. And so a lot of what we're talking about here is actually that Shwada is giving yourself permission to actually be the champion, to be the one on top of your own game. To actually do trust yourself completely. That you really do have the knowledge and vision of how to live, what the path really is and what it's not. Because you see, one of the things that's really beautiful about what is not is the, what's not the path is all of that rules, rituals, ways to do things, the things that we were taught as kids, the stuff that our society expects of us, absolutely none of that is going to make you happy. Feel about the Paramahansa, all of the rites, rules, and rituals that you've ever gotten has only increased your amount of things to do, the amount of work you have to do, and all of that. So when we get rid of those that parent ego state, or mollify it, turn it out of critical thinking into nurturing thinking, we recognize that truly is the path. And when we come to that, we know it. We've got it. So that reinforces it, that part of, I can do this. So one comment slash question. So it's funny because Buddhism is often imagined as this, you know, contemplative religion, right? Where you take time, you know, away from society, you know, you renounce society, all of this. Go into well, the forest, you can understand you know. why they do that. When somebody walks out of a monastery in North Carolina, a Catholic monastery, into a Buddhist wat in Thailand, they start to make connections that don't really fit. Sure, and, and the reason I bring this up is what you're saying about courage is not like, that's a, not this contemplative sort of live in a cave somewhere kind of thing. And that is a part of Buddhism still to go do that, but, you know. For the losers, the winners get up out of the cave and dance. <laughs> Only the few are capable of coming to the top of their mind. Very few Buddhist monks manage to clean out their minds successfully. Part of it is because they don't know this major trick of the Buddha of uh, being on guard and inspect every thought to make sure that this is a wholesome thought and not a wholesome thought. And why do you think they're not aware? I think that there have been... Oh, how to say it? First off, the... the the correct practice and the actual teachings of the Buddha have never been fully lost. They've always been here in every generation. There have always been monks who were worthy of great respect. There's still some famous monks in Thailand. And they are, and they're well known, because in fact they can live the life that the Buddha talks about, and they do so brilliantly, happily. Okay, so there's always been that, but it's still, you see, in the time of the Buddha, 
uh, basically one needed to be a soda pond before they actually joined the song, and that's the better way of doing it. But you can also see that if someone is actually, if they um, ordain correctly, then the reason to ordain is in order to follow the teachings of the Buddha, to actually do the Dhamma. Well, many people, and that uh, um, Olivier will agree to this if he knows much about Cambodia, that there's a whole lot of forces in Cambodia that will get a man to ordain as a monk that have nothing to do with him wanting to do it solely to follow the Dhamma. One example is because of family pressure. His mommy wants him to be a monk because she can't be one herself. In Thailand, they call it uh, mom rides the coattails of her son, the monk, into heaven. And the way that that's actually done is, is that the mom is the star of the show at an ordination. The mom of the new ordained monk is more of a star than he himself. Why? Because he's under the preview of the monks, and all the lay people that came there are the family members of the mom, and she's the star of the show. And so, in a way, uh, her son being ordained and taking on those robes puts her into heaven right then and there. So I don't d disagree with that at all, that mom rides her son's uh, robe tails into heaven. That's one of the reasons for them to ordain. Many of them don't stay long. But in the old days, it was two years was the normal time for them to stay a monk, and that would be good enough time for them to be to learn their way around. So after two years, they come out, and they don't drink, they don't smoke, they won't beat their wife, and they don't beat their kids. And that's qualification enough in, in uh, Thailand to get one guy married. Yeah. Is that if he's been a monk and he knows how to behave himself. Okay, so, but that still doesn't mean that he is a, a, of a noble mind yet. And so there's a whole lot of reasons for people to ordain. And that if he stays ordained as a monk long enough, living with other monks who are noble, it rubs off. If you are actually around really noble, happy people who don't do a thing and don't ask you to do anything and don't send you on errors and just invite you to sit down and enjoy yourself, you begin to take that on as a habit also and don't even know why. There could be a natural enlightenment. It's actually possible uh, in, in a criminal justice system for a man sitting in uh, solitary confinement with just a little bit of information can walk out of that cell five years later a fully enlightened being. It's quite possible. John Orr is working really hard at it in the United States to come bring that about in the federal prison system, and I congratulate him for that effort. So uh, we can actually use then even locked up in prison as an opportunity for practice. So don't be afraid to go to prison and say, hey, man, if you're going to put me in prison, fine, I'll go. I get free food. I don't even have to leave the cell to eat. Everything's going to be all right. Everything is fine. And so we develop that attitude of, hey, man, I don't want out of here. I'm fine in here. I'm, I'm okay. And so this is the way that we would uh, do that. 
And you can see that that same thing, even if the guy's not in prison, but he's actually sitting in a watt with nothing to do and no place to go, some of them will treat being a monk as if they were in prison. Instead of in, uh, but the likelihood of the guy in prison on his own to become enlightened is not high. But the likelihood of, of a, a man who just sits and lives with um, enlightened dudes, he's likely going to just pick it up naturally. This is also possible, but that's going to be a long, slow path to do it that way. So, back to that third kind of um, doubt. Doubt about what is and is not the path is the culmination of the doubt. Once you know for sure that you've got the right way of living, that you know for sure that this Buddha Dhamma is going to be a workable system, and that you can follow it, and that you don't need anyone else's help to do it, now that's the full eradication of doubt. This is also part of the definition of becoming a sotapan. is that eradication of that doubt about what is and what is not the path, and previously having given up sila bhata paramasa, and also previously having giving up personality view in the sense of I am this and that and uh, reincarnation and souls and whatnot. So we have three layers of um, fetters that are destroyed by knowledge. Knowledge alone will destroy these three fetters. Knowledge of who I am not. Not who I am because you never will figure that out because you're a moving target. But you will always, who am I not? Because you're not your past. You're not your personality. You're not uh, the future. You're just not any of those things. So when we understand personality view is I'm not my personality, then you understand, and the way that this personality has been dealing with the world is not effective. So I need a new way of doing it. And then comes the knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path. So those are the three fetters. Who am I? What is this all about? And all this is the right way to go. Mm. And those, those are the three fetters. And those three fetters are worked out through a full investigation of the Four Noble Truths. When we see this is suffering and this is the cause of suffering, then we can come to, wow, oh, this is the end of suffering. And this is the path to the end of suffering. And so we begin to apply the Four Noble Truths every time we think of it. Uh, because else? that's the path. That Eightfold Noble Path, that's the path. Every time we think of it, let's get on the path and we got it made. Totally great stuff. So anyway, I have to go to bed now. It's almost one in the morning. And I got I've got, a, up for work I've got tomorrow, another but. caller calling, so I'm going to let you go. But this has um, been a good talk, and we've covered two major points. One is how to decide what is wholesome and not wholesome. And along with that, the issue of doubt. In the sense of doubt, it's not wholesome. But it'll take a while to get rid of some of that doubt. But as we do, we keep moving the bar between what is wholesome and what is not wholesome until we get up to the point that we're only on very high quality wholesome points we don't allow the wholesome sounds good all right well thank you guys so much have a wonderful evening or morning or whatever it is wherever you are and uh cheers thank you 
Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye, Olivia. We'll see you later. Good to see you again.